Hello, I'm your host, Christine, and welcome back to Politic. In Season 3, we'll be touching on global issues that affects the federal level in Canada. With four episodes, we hope that this podcast will bring self-consciousness and situations that affect our everyday lives. The first episode, we'll be diving deeper into discussion of the impacts on youth in the healthcare system with science and medicine in action. Thank you very much for joining us today. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us where you're from and what your organization does? Hi there, we are here from SciMed in Action. My name is Anelpa, I'm the event coordinator, and I'm here with Shelly, our COO. So SciMed in Action is a not-for-profit organization. We were established last year, and since then we've been working towards making the fields of science and medicine both more accessible and understandable to youth. We believe that passion and drive are key elements to success in these fields, and that's why all our initiatives are geared towards taking science and medicine beyond the classroom and into action. And we are so inspired by how you guys provide important education and information to people in such an accessible manner, and so we're very excited to be here. This season, we are looking at federal issues that may need more attention, but healthcare isn't something we often see as an issue here. Can you give us a background as to how we establish our universal healthcare system? All right, everyone. So please bear with me for this question because its history is quite long. As outlined in Health Canada, in 1966, the federal government passed the Medical Care Act, which promised to cover, or cost share, half of the cost of medical treatment rendered by a practitioner outside of hospitals. Both provinces and territories had compulsory health services payment policies within six years. The federal government's financial contribution to healthcare was calculated as a proportion, so one half of provincial and territorial spending on insured hospital and physician facilities from 1957 to 1977. Cost sharing was supplemented by a block fund, in this case, a combination of federal and provincial funds under the Federal Provincial Fiscal Arrangements and Establishment Programs Financing Act of 1977. That's a mouthful. I know. (laughs) Cost sharing was replaced by a block fund, in this case a blend of cash contributions and tax points under the aforementioned Federal Provincial Fiscal Arrangements and Establishment Programs Financing Act of 1977. A block fund is an amount of money transferred from one government level to another for a particular reason. In a tax point swap, the federal government lowers its tax rate while the provincial and territorial governments increase their rates by the same level. As a result of the revised financing arrangement, federal and municipal jurisdictions will have the freedom to spend healthcare funds according to their own desires and goals. As a result, the health transition additionally includes federal transfers for post-secondary education. The Canada Health Act was passed by the federal government in 1984. The Federal Hospital and Medical Insurance Acts were repealed, and the values of those acts were unified by creating standards for, well, portability, usability, universality, comprehensiveness, and public administration. The act also included provisions prohibiting additional billing and consumer fees for insured facilities. And for more information, please see the federal government section, check out their website. They've got a more in-depth and detailed description of this. 
Moving forward, beginning in the fiscal year of 1996 to 1997, a new law passed in 1995 merged federal cash and revenue payments supporting healthcare and post-secondary education with federal transfers supporting welfare and social aid into a single block financing system known as the Canada Health and Social Transition, CHST. The federal, state, and territorial representatives, or first ministers as they're called, signed an agreement on health in 2000, outlining changes in primary health care, pharmaceuticals administration, health information and communications technologies, and health equipment and facilities. Simultaneously, the federal government expanded cash contributions to help with health care. The Accord on Healthcare Renewal, signed by the First Ministers in, I believe it was 2003, called for institutional changes to the healthcare sector to promote coverage, efficiency, and long-term sustainability. Governments agreed to collaborate for focused improvements in areas such as accelerated primary healthcare renewal, promoting computer technologies, so for example, electronic health reports, telehealth, um, provision for some home care facilities and medications, improved access to laboratory and surgical devices, and improved government transparency. So just kind of to summarize, Canadian Medicare is a decentralized, free, publicly financed healthcare scheme in Canada. The country's 13 provinces and territories are largely responsible for funding and administering healthcare. Each has its own health coverage and provides per capita cash assistance from the federal government. Benefits and distribution methods differ, but medically appropriate health care and physician care are, however, provided free of charge to both civilians and permanent residents. Provinces and regions have some provision for targeted populations to pay for restricted facilities, such as outpatient prescription medications and dental treatment. Private insurance, however, is carried by almost two-thirds of Canadians. Public health is generally available in high-populated areas, However, for those living in remote areas, especially in indigenous reserves, it is often difficult to assess public health care. What continues to be a challenge for a universally funded system to provide health services for this population? Now, this is an interesting question for sure, and one that desperately needs attention. So, I recently read an article on healthy debate on this topic, more specifically, Indigenous Health Services Often Hampered by Legislative Confusion by Karen Palmer, Joshua Tepper, and Michael Nolan, and I apologize if I mispronounced anybody's names. They outline that the causes are complex and long-standing, with all of them succinctly expressed in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report, so lack of direct government oversight, as well as long-standing disagreements between provinces and the federal government about who exactly is responsible for delivering and paying for Indigenous people's health care are huge contributing factors. The federal government has made promises to strengthen Indigenous people's treatment, and a new ministry devoted to Indigenous resources was founded only a few weeks before this article was written. While the specifics of this new portfolio are unknown, and the new minister's mandate letter has not yet been made public, Healthy Debate is looking at how Indigenous healthcare is actually administered. The separation of responsibilities between the federal and provincial or tribal governments is outlined in Canada's constitution. Although Canadians' well-being is a provincial and territorial responsibility, 
with the Canada Health Act of 1984, detailing provinces and territories' obligations for providing health care, health provision for Indigenous communities is seen as a federal responsibility, as stated in the Indian Act of 1876. The Canada Health Act, which outlines the terms and standards expected by provincial health insurance plans, is used by the federal and provincial governments to facilitate health transfers. It makes no mention of Indigenous groups, including First Nations and Inuit, Métis, and non-status or off-reserve Indigenous peoples. Both the federal government and provinces have traditionally exploited this lack of clarification and a lack of strategies for delivering Indigenous health care to broadly describe their obligations for Indigenous health. It has resulted in regulatory shortages causing Indigenous communities to queue for treatment or prescriptions that are easily accessible to non-Indigenous Canadians. It's also created care differences between Indigenous and non-status residents, as well as off-reserve First Nations peoples. Across the country, thousands of international students come to study in our public-funded institutions from high school to post-secondary. Still, access to health is entirely their responsibility. In Manitoba, over 15,000 students were denied access to the public health program in Alberta. If our system is universal, how come populations like students are denied access? Now, this question is a bit more complicated. As outlined in Canadim, or Canadime, the Canadian immigration law firm, the healthcare system in Canada varies by province. So, what does that mean? Foreign nationals looking to study in Canada should familiarize themselves with the healthcare options available in their chosen province. International students are covered by government healthcare programs in some jurisdictions, but the majority of provinces mandate students to enroll in private health insurance plans. Many provinces that need foreign students to purchase private health insurance often provide health insurance packages to international students. For some cases, colleges will encourage students to enroll in their healthcare plans, and in others, students will be able to opt out of their student health insurance plans if they can show they have private health insurance from another source. Migrant farm workers are usually requested by farmers across the country to assist our food chain and economy. However, for those in low-skilled labor, their status does not guarantee them access to health care services from day one, meaning they are left without coverage for a short period. Why are these essential workers left without access to health care? According to Doctors Within Borders, Meeting the Healthcare Needs of Migrant Farm Workers in Canada by Michael, I'm so sorry if I mispronounce this, Sikilwek et al., despite having legal rights to health insurance and other services in Canada, many jobs have trouble accessing their benefits. Language gaps and a shortage of interpreters are common, as are issues or complications in obtaining insurance cards or coverage, cultural disparities a lack of transportation, a lack of education and literacy, and low health literacy. Long work days, reliance on employees for health coverage, especially concerns over secrecy as employers serve as translators, refusal to take time off work for fear of risking jobs or compensation, and fear of being repatriated when sick or wounded are some of the other obstacles. Migrant staff also seek care at overwhelmed remote walk-in clinics and emergency departments. So those language gaps and cultural variations will present challenges to the practitioner serving this group, as will complications with follow-up and subsequent issues with contact and compliance. 
Medicine has regularly been discussed as a barrier to health. In recent years, provinces like Ontario have expanded eligible drugs available in provincial programs. However, for those who need medication that is not covered, they are forced to use private insurance or pay directly. What is interrupting the progress towards covering medications for all Canadians? So, as of right now, our pharmacare system is quite complicated. As you said, prescription drug coverage looks different from province to province and from person to person. When universal healthcare was first established, prescription drugs were seen as important, but they weren't used as commonly and were much less expensive than they are today. Right now, prescription drugs are the second largest cost in our healthcare system, just after hospitals. So, our current circumstances and needs differ vastly from what they were some 50 years ago. According to Health Canada, right now, Canada utilizes a system of over 100 government-run drug insurance plans and over 100,000 private drug insurance plans. So, most Canadians do have some form of drug coverage, whether public or private. However, about 1 in 5 Canadians either does not have adequate insurance to cover their needs or does not have prescription drug insurance at all. Now, one of the main causes and consequences of this system is that we pay some of the highest prices for prescription drugs in the world. Countries that do have universal prescription drug coverage often get better deals with suppliers. These high prices that we pay are causing our drug insurance plans to continue to be strained. Another barrier to universal access is high co-payments and deductibles. A deductible is the amount that you pay for covered services before your insurance plan does. So let's say your deductible is $2,500. This means that you will have to pay the first $2,500 of covered services yourself. And a co-payment is a fixed amount that you would pay for a service after you've paid your deductible. So it's another cost that you're paying. Now, because these co-payments and deductibles are often high, they prevent people from taking their prescription drugs either in the recommended manner or at all. So, as you can see, it's quite a complicated system that we have in place, and if universal prescription drug coverage is something that we want to achieve, there will be several factors to consider. Another aspect of public health that often gets overlooked is dental care. It is entirely private with the exception of people in government programs such as disability insurance. Why is dental care still not considered as part of the public health system, even if the risk of poor dental care can cause strain in the general public health system? So right now, as you said, dental care is only publicly covered for specific groups. Canadians are largely responsible for financing their own dental care, and do this often through third-party insurance, private dental insurance, or paying directly out of pocket. According to a study published in the Network for Canadian Oral Health Research from 1961 to 1964 and the years leading up to the passing of the Medical Care Act, the Royal Commission on Health Services carried out several studies on issues related to healthcare and dentistry. They recommended to the government that we should have target dental coverage rather than universal coverage. One of the reasons for this was that they placed dental health under the category of personal responsibility. They maintained that each person had an individual responsibility for their health and that public liability should reflect this responsibility. 
Another reason revolves around dentists' attitudes at the time towards public dental coverage. Many were against a publicly structured dental care system, as they did not want the government to have control over their profession. Another important factor was that in the 1950s, community water fluoridation became available. This caused a significant decline in cavities, and so the spreading of water fluoridation became seen as an alternative to public dental coverage. As a result, when the Medical Care Act of 1966 was established, dental coverage was not included. Today we discuss some topics in healthcare that are leaving many people without support. There are still some items we would have loved to cover, but for now, what would you recommend our listeners do to support efforts to address the healthcare issues? Okay, so for example, in Canada, all healthcare providers can work to improve Aboriginal health. This will happen on a regular basis for those who care for people of all ages in a variety of settings, including remote areas, metropolitan settings, and tertiary care centers. In order to improve Aboriginal well-being, we must also lobby in important fields. This involves assisting all Canadians in comprehending Aboriginal people's heritage, as well as the detrimental consequences of colonialism and the residential school system, the importance of social determinants of health, and the pressing need for improved schooling and jobs. More Aboriginal healthcare professionals, multidisciplinary teams, increased Aboriginal self-government, including control over programs such as health and education, improved care for patients, families, and communities through adequate funding and relevant programs developed with Aboriginal input, and appropriately evaluated and research-directed by or undertaken by them. This is a long list, but each of these topics is critical, interconnected, and must be championed. So, in summary, change has to start from awareness and knowledge on the issue. Get in contact with your local MPP, share this information with others, and especially listen and advocate for the voices of those who have first-hand experiences with these issues. Thank you very much for joining us today. Where can our listeners stay up to date with your organization? So you can find us at scimedinaction.org, that is S-C-I-M-E-D-inaction.org, and there we have the links to our website and all our social media sites, including Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We also have a podcast called Simon and Voice, and you can find that on any platform that you listen to podcasts on. We recently put on an episode where we had students from a bunch of different science undergrad programs in Ontario diving into the differences between their programs and universities. So if you've been struggling with making decisions about where to go for your undergrad, make sure to check that out. On our Instagram page and website, you will be able to view many of our past initiatives, articles we published giving you insights into different aspects of healthcare, and on our Instagram, we consistently provide our followers with information about opportunities for them in healthcare. Thank you so much for having us, and make sure to check us out. Thank you. Mm-hmm.